Last week, we were talking about the story of Joseph, and this week it continues. We're reading the portion of Miketz. One of the most amazing things of Joseph was that he went into prison for doing nothing. He was accused of uh, being with someone who was the wife of his owner. He was a servant, a slave. He was sold as a slave, sent down to Egypt by his brothers. And then this, uh, the head of the executions of Egypt, which was like a very special position to have. Everyone's scared of him. So they had the executioner of Egypt hired Joseph as his servant. He was 17 years old. He was a very good-looking guy. And the wife of this um, household, the wife of uh, Potiphera, was a very bad woman. And she constantly tried to seduce uh, Joseph into being with her. And Joseph kept saying, no, how can I do this? I am committed to my owner, which is your husband, and I can't do this. And eventually, uh, Joseph, uh, one one day, she eventually uh, really tries very hard to get hold of him. And Joseph leaves his clothes and runs away. He leaves his clothes with her and runs away. And it says that, uh, you know, Joseph did the right thing. He overcame his challenge. Hi, Dan. He overcame his challenge did a good thing. And he knew that by leaving his clothes with her, he was going to be accused of, he knew that this woman, because of what she's doing, could easily accuse him of the exact opposite, of trying to uh, the uh, to force her. I'm trying, you know, my kids are here. He was trying to force her. And uh, that's what she did. She pretended, look, I have the clothes here. He tried to be with me and he, f- he tried to force and I managed to run away from him. He ran away, get him, and they got hold of him and they put him in prison. And he was in prison for 10 years. Whilst he was in prison, Joseph meets, uh, towards the end of his 10 years in prison, he meets uh, these two people that had dreams. These were two prisoners who were Egyptian One was the butler of the king, Pharaoh, and one was the baker of King Pharaoh. And he meets the kings, he he meets these two people in in, in in the prison, and he says to them, what's going on? You seem troubled today. And they say to him, yes, we've had bad dreams the other night. And he says, what were the dreams? One says, the the butler the one that worked with the wine of the king, says, yes, I had a bad dream. And what happened was, uh, you know, I had this wine and, um, and you know, it was three bundles and whatever. And if, uh, Joseph says, you know what? What's going to happen in three days from now, the three different bundles of wine is a representation of in the future, in three days from now, you're going to be freed from prison and you're going to be serving the king again. So uh, the butler says, I also had a dream and his dream was three baskets and on top of his baskets, on top of the three baskets of bread uh, is were birds coming and they were eating from the baskets of bread. And he says, Joseph says, well, that is a sign that in three days from now, you are going to be killed. We spoke last week about dreams and how sometimes they can be true, whilst most times they have some kind of influence from the way we think today. In, in terms of every day, whatever you thought has an influence on your dream, but also other things have an influence on your dream. Like when you sleep, a 60th of you goes to a, a portion of you leaves your body Right, it's it says that it's a sixtieth of death when a person sleeps. It's a sixtieth of prophecy, meaning you get to meet different people. The stories I said last week of a story, uh, Shira's, she's there. But before every time, after she was pregnant, uh, Shira's sister always called us up and would say, "Shira, I had a dream that you have you had a baby last night," and uh, it was always bang on, always. It happened with every single one of our kids before we even told anybody. Uh, she calls us up and says, hey, I had a dream that you are having a baby. 
And every time she was right. So there's something going on here with dreams. And uh, Joseph here interprets the dreams. He says to the one that was the baker that has the bread on top of him, he says, uh, you know, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be taken and you're actually going to be killed. What's the reason? Because birds don't come to people that are alive. They only come to those that are not alive. They're afraid of people that are alive. So, um, for some reason it says that it's sharing audio. It's okay. But for some reason people, uh, don't uh, birds don't come to humans when they're alive animals in general are scared from the human being traditionally kabbalistically it's told because we have a spark of god on us and that causes a certain fear on animals over us there are wild animals but even them they are afraid of the human face that's what it says so uh birds don't normally come to human beings and this time in the dream they were coming to the to the baker so he says that they're going to, in three days' time, they're going to take you out of here and they're going to kill you. And that's exactly what happened. Three days after, the butler gets taken out and he was saved. The baker was taken out and he was put to death. So this was the story of Joseph, 10 years. And then he was in prison for another two years. Two years later, Pharaoh has dreams. The butler's freed. By the way, Joseph tells him, tells the butler, please, when you go, please tell Pharaoh to remember me, I did you a fa- I did you a favor. I interpreted your dreams. Please, when you leave this prison, and by the way, when you go to prison in Egypt, right? Pre, I don't know how what era, thousands of years ago, four thousand years ago. When you go to a prison like that, you may not come out. It's like Alcatraz. Right? You know, there's no there's no leaving of this place. So, uh, you know, he he. He thought, that's it, I'm done. So he said, look, you're going to get freed, but please remember me. And uh, they obviously didn't. They didn't care. They were freed. Uh, one was killed, but the butler was freed and went back to normal life and completely forgot Joseph. But uh, t- two years later, Pharaoh has dreams. And Pharaoh has two different types of dreams. Does anyone know? Remember the dreams? One was the dream of... Uh, this. Oh, welcome. Welcome, Ben. Nice to see you. So one was the dream of... Uh, sorry? The wheat and the cows. Yes, the wheat and the cows. First, it's the cows. There's these seven cows that are coming out of the river, the River Nile in Egypt. And they walk onto the marshland and they start eating, grazing. And then as soon as they... These are big, big cows, very plump and well-fed cows on the marshland. And all of a sudden, seven thin ones also come out from the River Nile and they eat up. This is his dream, right? It's not real. But they eat up his plump uh, cows. They eat them up. And these very thin, malnourished cows remain malnourished. They remain thin. And then he wakes up from his dream. And then Pharaoh has another dream, a second dream. By the way, this is what we said last week. One of the signs that a dream is real is if you have it twice. If it happens to you twice. And this is exactly what happens with Pharaoh. The dream was happening twice in two different forms. But the same message is coming twice. And the second dream was that uh, there's stalks of grain and what happened was there was this one stalk of grain and it had seven big bundles coming out of it of wheat. And um, all of a sudden, a seven thin ones, you know, this big, big pieces of wheat were coming out of this one stalk. Then all of a sudden, seven small ones came and swallowed up the seven big plump ones and they remained thin. They remain very, very small. And eventually, Pharaoh wakes up again and he's disturbed. He's disturbed by this sleep. He can't sleep properly. Um, And he's asking everybody, what is going on with this dream? And he speaks to all his witchcrafters. By the way, witchcrafters, Rashi here says that it's referring to, in those days, they knew how to speak to the dead. We have a commandment in the Torah. We're not allowed to speak to the dead. It's a commandment, actually. It's one of the mitzvot. Don't speak to the dead. 
in case you want to speak to them. So uh, it says that the Egyptians knew they were amazing astrologists, but also they had a tremendous ability to speak to the outside world, to the spiritual world, to speak to the dead. And he tried to get them to convince him, and they they all said different things. One said, you're going to marry seven different wives, and then there's going to be another seven. And they all tried to say different things, but nothing convinced him because he realized, this is what one of the Midrash, one of the explanations is, that he realized no matter how much you try and say something, I feel like this is coming to me as the king because it's not just a story for me. It's a story about my people. It's a story for Egypt. It's a bigger story than just me. And he was right. And eventually, the butler who works for Pharaoh all the time sees that Pharaoh is in complete distress. And he says, I want to tell you, I'm going to mention to you my sin. Because in those times, if you mention something bad that you did to the king, the king rethinks it and he could put you to death. Oh, you were the one, the butler. By the way, the butler had a fly in his wine glass that he gave Pharaoh. The baker had a stone in his bread that he gave Pharaoh. So the butler that had a fly in it was saved because, you know, if you have a fly, it could be that it's not your fault. You know, the fly went into the wine. That could have been as you were serving it. A second before you served it, the fly came in. But the, the stone, that's absolute, you know, that's, that's a mistake on the part of the baker. And for that, for having a stone in the bread, death. So uh, the baker was put to death, but the butler stayed alive. And the butler's here with a, with a cup of wine. And, um, and he's speaking to Pharaoh. He sees that Pharaoh's distressed. And he says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I'm reminding you of my sin. Two years later, back in the day, there was me and the baker and we were put into prison and we were there for many years. And towards the end, we had dreams and there was somebody there, a very strange person, a servant, a Ivri, like a derogatory. He's like a Jew. Obviously, there wasn't Jews then, but he gave him a derogatory term. This disgusting, terrible, ridiculous person that's left in the prison. Him, that guy. He's still there and he interprets dreams. Maybe bring him out. And it says that at that point, Pharaoh ran him out, pulled him out quickly from the pit, dragged him out quickly from the pit. And we know that from there, we learn a very powerful message that whatever, whatever decree a person needs to have in his life will have it and not if second more meaning the things that we go through in life, when I say decree, purpose. There's challenges that we all go through in life, whether it's living through COVID, living through whatever it is in life that we all go through. Some people not getting a job. The minute that you are meant to get your job, it will be the minute that you'll have it. Teshuat Hashem Kerefain, it says, salvation in life, meaning the challenges that we go through, can be removed from us, like a blink of an eye, in a second. Challenges, that's how it works. When the Holocaust happened on Liberation Day, people couldn't believe it. Jews couldn't believe it. I have a friend, his grandfather, who I uh, knew very well. Uh, His grandfather survived the Holocaust and he got extremely sick after the Holocaust because he he found this tin of beans and he ate the whole thing for the first time after many years of not eating proper food suddenly just got managed to get hold of a whole tin of beans and ate it he said that that was his moment where he was more sick than before even during the time that he was in the during the the camps he never felt as sick as that moment after he ate this tin of beans he survived he was eventually fine but he got very sick and um, one of the things that they speak about is how liberation was a shock to everybody. It was from one moment to the next. 1944, you were in hell. 1945, on Liberation Day, it was like back to normal. The world kind of forgave them. Things were moving on. Yes, there was still evil around, but it was like a, tr- it was like a switch. And everyone was respecting them. 
and giving them food and looking after them. It was like a, a complete switch. Don't get me wrong. They tried to go back to their homes that were stolen. They were taken. I don't know why anyone would want to go back to their homes of a country that literally disgraced them in ways that were not humane. But one thing we do know is that whatever people go through, and I'm not here to explain all the troubles that we have in life. That's for tomorrow night on uh Steig session that we have because there we talk about suffering. But one thing's for sure. We have this lesson in Judaism that whatever challenge you go through, surviving the challenge will be a second. Coming out of that challenge is a second. So some people tell me, it looks like COVID's not going to end. I tell them COVID's going to end in a second. The same way it started in a second. Right? When, when Purim last year was happening, we had this massive party in our house. Everyone was saying, this, nah, it's not going to close down. Like, what's happening in China? We were watching videos of Wuhan and we were like, whoa, this is insane. <laughs> right? We were thinking, this is not going to happen to us. And then, and then we came Wuhan. You know, we came worse. We're back to normal already. I mean, I don't know. But we came crazy here. So as quick as this little virus came, boom, in a second, suddenly we heard of coronavirus is as quick as it went, is as quick as it's going to go away. Don't, no question about it. It's going to go away in a second. That's how things work. And it happens with Joseph in the same way. They ran him out from the pit. They shaved him. They made him look beautiful again. You know, being 10 years in prison. It wasn't five years, 10 years in the worst prison. By the way, he came very famous in the prison. He was very I thought it was 12 years. 12 years altogether. 12 years in prison. Uh, thank you. It, it was, um, it was a, a tr- tremendous pain. I mean, to be in such a place, we're not talking about the prisons of today tremendous effort and by the way he was a young boy can you imagine what he's thinking during that time from 17 till till you know it, it it's insane insane the amount of pressure and and pain that he was going through at 30 at the age of 30 he eventually became the second person in command under the king of pharaoh this is the greatest drama story ever you know the greeks the syrian greeks came to the Jews thinking they were the ones that were the most cultured. They have the most drama and the most literature and the most uh, beautiful wisdom. Then they came to Jerusalem and they saw the Jews, the Syrian Greeks are the people of Hanukkah. They saw the Jews and they were like, wow, these people have all of that. And that's why they started to hate us. They tried to stop us. That's one of the reasons. But here goes Pharaoh, and he's let free. Pharaoh is uh, lets Joseph free, takes him out, and not only does he take him out, he lets him become second in command of Egypt. There's a deeper story to it, of course. The Midrash says, I have a camera which I use, and it's limited to 29 minutes. So, so there's, uh, there's a story. Actually, the story, the Midrash says that there were 70 steps in order to get to speak to Pharaoh. Pharaoh had a tremendous... He was like a living God. And in his palace, uh, there was 70 steps to get up. And the king, Pharaoh, knew many languages. He was a wise man. Stupid, eventually, with his wisdom and his pride. But he was, he was wise. And he knew many languages. And... Anybody who knows another language can come a step closer to him. He would ask Joseph when he came, when he brought him out of the pit, he asked Joseph a question in one language and Joseph managed to answer him. The Midrash says Joseph was a a man of wonder, a genius, a man of God. Hey, there's Bathsheba in the background. So, uh, Dan, you missed that. So Joseph, she's on the other camera in my house. So uh, so what was I saying? So, uh, yeah, so Joseph has, uh, Joseph, he was on the bottom of those 70 steps. Pharaoh would ask a question in one language, Joseph would answer. He'd ask another one in another language, Joseph would answer. For every language that Joseph would answer, he was allowed to go up another step. 
until eventually Joseph got to the 70th step. And then Joseph says, Shalom, Achi. Mashlomcha. What's up, my brother in Hebrew? And uh, Pharaoh didn't know that language. That's what the Midrash says. He didn't know that language. Now, the rule of Egypt was that if you know more languages than the king, than Pharaoh, you get to take his place. So Pharaoh made a deal with him. He says, listen, first of all, you're able to interpret my dreams. Joseph interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh. He said to him, listen, those seven big cows that are eaten by the thin cows and they remain thin is because from now, there's going to be seven years of plenty where you're going to have a lot, lots of wealth, lots of fruits and everything's going to grow well. Economically, the country's going to do really well. And then there's going to be seven years of absolute famine, terrible famine in the whole Middle East. And then he says, that's what also the second dream is. The reason why he had two dreams is because it's going to happen right now. He actually says two things. One, it's going to happen right now. And he says, because it's also from God. Remember, we said last week, there's three signs which tell you if a dream is real. The Talmud in, in Brachot in 55a says that there's three signs that a dream is real. One is if you have it close to the morning, which is also what happened to Pharaoh. Uh, the second is if you dream about somebody else a friend of yours. And the third, or if a friend of yours dreams about you, the third is uh, if if it happens twice. So it happened twice. And that was one of the signs from the Torah that it's going to happen and it's going to happen now because you're having it twice. So uh, Joseph says that to him and lo and behold, at the age of 30, Joseph is free. He's now second in command. He makes a deal with Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, listen, don't tell anybody that you know more languages than me and you're smarter than me and I will give you the, my ring. I will put you in second in command. You could do everything I do. Take my position. Take all my politics. Take all my headache. Just let me live in my palace. You take over the whole country. There's no more wise person than you because you have been able to interpret the dreams. They gave him a special name called Sofnat Paneach. They called Joseph the man that's able to see, see beyond, uh, see worlds. And they gave him a special name. And he got married. And eventually he has two children. This is the story of Joseph. He comes comes the wealthiest. Eventually his brothers come down from Canaan. His brothers come down, the brothers that threw him out. And they come and he so he hears that his brothers are coming and he says, bring them in as spies. And the reason that he did that was because there's brothers. There, in Egypt, there was 12 different gates, main big gates to enter the country. And in each one of those gates, there, each brother said, okay, we're going to go from a different one. Or maybe there was 11 cause, or 10, 10 different gates. There was 10 different gates to their walled, city country at that time and it's a fascinating the lessons that comes out of the story which is where i want to get to is fascinating so there was 10 different gates and these 10 sons of jacob without joseph and Binyamin, all decide they're going to look for joseph they forgive him and they want to ask him for forgiveness and save him and they know he's still in egypt so they decide when they come down to egypt they're all going to enter from a different gate and that way they can all look from all different angles of the country to see where Joseph could be. And during their time of investigation, they were considered as spies. They were taken in. By the way, they were, co- they were considered as people with human superpowers. It's like Smallville, just spiritually and physically. They were people with superpowers. And they all came through to Egypt and uh, Joseph calls them in as spies. He talks to them, pretends they don't recognize him because he's 13. He has a beard. He looks different. He's wearing the clothing of, of Egypt. He's not wearing the regular clothing anymore. And they can't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And it's very, very interesting. He sends them back. He says, listen, I know you're spies. Please, where, who are you with? Where's the rest of your family? Why didn't you bring your other brother? Bring your other brother. You, they bring his other brother. And he takes one of the brothers as well. And eventually, in, the, in next week's Torah portion, he reveals himself and he says, Ani Yosef, I'm Joseph. 
Ha'od Avichai is my father still alive. And a beautiful rebuke that he gives his brothers and he forgives them and he hugs them and he gets back together. One of the most amazing drama stories ever. So that's generally the story of Joseph. Guys, get it? Right, you with me? You all know that already? Okay, you all know it already. But it's always good to remind ourselves of the story. But here goes something uh, that we can learn. First of all, the idea of how challenges, immediately when the challenge is over, and obviously Joseph went through those challenges to become the savior of the Jewish people. He saved everybody. He saved Egypt. He saved everybody because of the famine and because of his way of interpreting the dream and so on. It was all obviously God's plan. But besides for the greatness that he got through his challenges, of course, we also know how when a challenge is over, exactly what challenge you're meant to have is what you'll have. Whatever you're not meant to have, you won't have. We also learned this last week when Joseph was taken and sent by his brothers and they were sold. He was taken from the pit, thrown in a pit, sold to the Arab merchants that were traveling down to Egypt. He was sold. The Torah tells me exactly what was in the wagon of those merchants. It says that the Arab merchants had in that wagon, they had spices, beautiful smelling spices. And our rabbis teach us, it's not telling us for that for no reason. The Torah never tells us anything for no reason. Why did it say spices? Because normally these Arab merchants are selling oil. They would sell petrol, gas, which, have a, which doesn't have a good smell. Actually, I personally love the smell of petrol, of gas. But I don't know. Some people don't like it. I love the smell. Every time I go in there, I take it. No, I'm joking. But I do love that smell. And uh, it goes into, <laughs> some people look at me as if I'm weird. I am weird. So he goes into that uh, uh, wagon and he's smelling spices. Our rabbis say, you know why he smells spices and not petrol, not gas? Petrol is what they say in England. Not Gas, neft, the reason why he smelled it, because he didn't, de- he didn't need it. God made him go in style. He needed to go to Egypt. That was his tikkun. That was his purpose. Fine, he got that. He was taken to Egypt. But on the way, he didn't need to go in a way of suffering. He didn't need to go in a way which was uncomfortable. And Joseph had the ability to see in his suffering, his brother's soldier, in his suffering, see a positive light. He said, wow, I'm going down there with the smell of spices instead of the smell of petrol, instead of the smell of oil. This is we- something's different. And the reason is because he saw how this time, whatever he needs to get is for the good, and it's going to come out in a good way. But what he doesn't need to get, he won't get. And that's exactly what happened. He only got what he needed. So we all know why Joseph suffered. He suffered because eventually he came the greatest. Has anyone heard of the Count of Monte Cristo? An amazing story. Similar, they must have taken it from the, from, the, from the Torah. Such a similar story. Obviously, Joseph comes the greatest of the great. But it's an amazing, amazing story. The drama behind it, the, the story behind it is, is beyond. So we all know why Joseph suffered. What we don't know is why is Jacob suffering? It says that Jacob lost his prophecy. It says says in the Talmud that somebody who's unhappy, and obviously in Jacob's level, he was a great person. Obviously he wasn't depressed. I can't can't say he was depressed. But somebody who's unhappy, somebody who's unhappy loses his wisdom and loses his prophecy. It also says that about anger. Somebody who's angry loses a certain level of intelligence. His IQ level goes a little bit down. The same with somebody who's sad or depressed. They can't think properly. Their IQ ability has been reduced. And it says also, according to Judaism, that the level of prophecy has been reduced as well. A person can't be a prophet during the time of, um, during the time of sadness. You have to be happy. David would have the music playing. You have to be happy playing music, right? To get your highest level of Judaism, this is what it is. To get the highest level of Judaism, you need to be happy. To get on that place where you're like in the other worlds, 
you got to be happy. No. And it was another whole discussion whether you believe in prophecy or not. That's another discussion. We have over a million and a half prophets, not just one prophet that says, privately, God spoke to me. A million and a half prophets that we have in the Jewish people throughout our history. Today, since Hanukkah happened, prophecy ended. Prophecy ended when Hanukkah happened. That's one of the ideas behind bringing in the light. So anyway... We all know why Joseph suffered. What was the point in Jacob's suffering? Why was he suffering? He lost his son, his, he was so close to. For 22 years, Rashi says at the end of the portion of Toldot, he says that it was 22 years that Jacob was away from, Joseph was away from Jacob. Why? Why did he have to suffer so much? So it says, because Joseph because Jacob, his father, Joseph's father, was also away from his parents for 22 years. Now, if you actually calculate the amount of years that uh, Jacob was away from his parents, was much more. Much more. But he says 22 years, besides for the 14 years that he was studying Torah. We know that when Joseph, when Jacob left his family, when, when Jacob left his family because Asaph, his brother, was trying to kill him, he left his family and he first went for 14 years to study Torah. And then only afterwards did he go to get married and, and live by Lavan, this trickster, his uncle. And he tricked him and so on. But it was 14 years that he studied. For those years, he didn't have any problem. There was nothing wrong with that because he was doing good things. But 22 years after that, it says two years that he was traveling, seven years that he was trying to marry Rachel, and then he got Leah, then another, then another seven years that he had to marry Rachel, and then another six years where he worked for Lavan to get his cattle and all his money that he earned, and then another two years of travel. So altogether, it was 22 years that Jacob was away from his parents, and because of that, 22 years, he lost Joseph from him. It's kind of strange because we know who told Jacob to leave his parents. Does anyone know? Hope I'm not getting too uh, technical and too deep here. But do you know who told Joseph, Jacob, to leave his parents? I'm sorry, I keep mixing up the names. Who told Jacob to leave? Who told Jacob, Dan, who told Jacob to leave home? God? No. His mom, Rebecca. His mom. His, and, and, and you know what? Isaac agrees with him eventually and says, yes, you need to go to Canaan and get married there. He, his own parents told him to leave. So what did he do wrong? He didn't do anything wrong. He, he was getting killed. He had to run away. His own parents told him to leave. He didn't do anything wrong. Actually, some of the commentaries explain he didn't do anything wrong in leaving because that's what he was meant to do in order to survive and listen to his parents he actually listened to his parents but there was one thing which he did which our rabbis explain is that he forgot his parents in some ways whatever that means on his level he forgot his parents he didn't have a strong connection to his parents when he was away even though he wasn't with them he couldn't facetime or WhatsApp, if you've got an Android. He couldn't FaceTime with him because they didn't have that in those days. Can you imagine the amount of years, 30 years without seeing your family and not being able to FaceTime with them? We, we're away from family, but we, we get to speak on phone. We, we get to a video call. Can you imagine what that means, traveling, not knowing if you're ever going to come back for 30 years? So Jacob was away for a long time and it was very, it was very, hard for him but what he did was he in a way he forgot his parents a bit what on his level and for that he lost joseph for 22 years as well everybody on their level their challenges of life come based on the level that you're on so because of that joseph was also away from him for 22 years even though jacob was also learning torah for 14 years that wasn't taken away from him but 22 years was where he lost his son, Joseph. So I want to speak a bit for a few minutes here about honoring parents because leaving a parent 
isn't is also Maimonides says that even when a parent isn't with you, you can honor your parents. Interesting. Even when a parent passes on, you can honor your parents. You can co- fulfill the commandment of honoring your parents. Listen, I want to share with you a Talmud, very interesting Talmud. Rabbi Yehuda says in the name of Shmuel, please listen, it's very interesting. It's a Talmud in the Kiddushin, in the Tractate of Marriage, 31a. You know why it's in the Tractate of Marriage? Because when you leave your parents, you get married, you're like, ah, goodbye, mom and dad, see you later. Right? It's very easy to forget your parents at that point. That's when they need you the most. They, they brought you up when, you know, it's like somebody who fed you, gave you everything, looked after you, Suddenly you're gone, and now you leave them to be old on their own. It's kind of mean. So it's in the tractate of Kiddushin, the tractate of marriage, that we learn about honoring our parents. So listen to this. Rabbi Yehuda said in the name of Shmuel, the Astra Abeliezer, till what point do you have to honor your parents? Meaning, how far does it go? You know, If your parents throw uh, junk in your face, they tell you you're an idiot. I mean, to what point do you stand up for yourself? At what point do you actually respond? Does it, does it not have an end? There must be an end. When it says in the Torah, honor your parents, there must be a limit. So what's the limit of honoring your parents? He says to them, go and learn from a non-Jew who lived in Ashkelon, in the north of Israel, where... I think it's the north of Israel. Yeah, it's the north of Israel where there's... Uh, wait a second. Is Ashkelon the south? Where's Shira? I think it's the south. It's Actually, just it's north of Gaza. Yeah, it's just by Gaza. It's further south. So Ashkelon was you know, by the, by the river, by the ocean. And there was this non-Jew that lived there. And he was a very special person. Amazing story. His name was Dama Ben Natina. That was his name. And the rabbis asked him, Bikshu mimenu chachamim avanim le'efod. You know, the, there was a special plate, gold plate, that the Kohen Agadol, the great priest, would wear. And on this plate, uh, there was breastplate, it was called. There was stones, 12 different stones, each representing the tribes. These were very special stones, and they had to be specific sapphire stones, and they were very hard to get hold of. There were very few. Okay, And they found out that this jeweler called Dama, the son of Natina, his name was Dama, which comes from the word money, uh, they asked him, they, they found out that he has, they knock on his door, and they say, listen, we heard that you have the special stones, we're, re- we're willing to pay 600,000 whatever coins of that time, 600,000 bucks for this j- stone. We know you have a certain stone. We're going to pay you $600,000 for this stone, let's say. Probably worth much more. And then some even say they even bargained to a point where they got to $800,000 for a stone. Right? Someone knocks on your door, says, hey, give me the stone. $600,000. $800,000? You wouldn't do it? $800,000. However... The key to the safe was placed under the head of his father whilst he was sleeping. It was under his pillow. And he didn't. He said, listen guys, my father's sleeping. I don't want to take the key from under his head. They said to him, wait a second. But we've got to, we've got to go now. There's other people that are selling it too. We can't stay here. We can't just tr- stay in Ashkelon. It's a long journey back to Jerusalem. We're willing to pay now 800000 He said, sorry, my dad's sleeping. I'm not going to do it. The next year, listen to this. God paid him back. Do you know what happened? God paid him back. In his, in his farm, everyone was a farmer then, he had a red heifer. Now, the red heifer was a special cow that was red completely, never worked. Uh, it's a very interesting story. You have to study it. But there was 10. The Talmud says there's only 10 red heifers ever. One is going to be when the Mashiach comes. 
And before that, there's only nine. Nine special cows called the red cow, which never works. Special cow. And he, he, in his house, was born a red heifer. Now that costed double the money. That's worth way much more than anything else. The rabbis came to him and he says to them, listen, I know by you that any money in the world you'll give me for this, but I'm only asking you the money that you would have given me last year. The money that I lost for the honor of my father, that's what I'm going to ask you. From here, our rabbis say that we learn if already somebody who's not commanded, a non-Jew is not commanded to honor his parents in the Torah, there's no law by him to honor his parents. If already somebody who's not commanded did honor his parents, he's doing it out of gratitude, all the more so us, we need to honor our parents and have gratitude towards them because we are commanded. And their non-Jews are not commanded because it says that the seven mitzvot b'nei noach, the non-Jews only have seven Noahide laws. Right? Easy to remember. There's three cardinal sins, which is you'd rather not kill somebody than kill, your, right? kill death, murder. That's something which is for everybody. Illicit relationships is for everybody. And finally, uh, the other sin is um, idol worship. Then, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalad. The next four are Aleph, Bet, Gimel, and Dalad. Okay? Aleph stands for Ever Min Hachai, which means a living animal. You can't eat from a living animal. That's a law for non-Jews too. There's a certain cruelty that we're not allowed to have, which is to eat Take a piece of sheep and go, right, and eat from it whilst it's alive. It's forbidden for Jews and for non-Jews. Then bet stands for, what does that stand for? Bet stands for cursing God. Bilkat Hashem, which means blessing God, but this is just a nice way of saying cursing God. So you're not allowed to curse God. That's one. That's two. And Gimel is Gezel, which is stealing. They're not allowed to steal. And Dalet, the fourth, is they have to have a court. Din stands for Din. Dine Mamonot. They need to have some kind of court system to keep people in check. So if somebody's stealing, they can stop him. Okay, So that's also something that they have to have. So these are the things that the non-Jews have, but they don't have the commandment to honor their parents. They are required out of logic but they're not commanded out of the Torah. Okay, there's, the, the logic tells them many things. One of them is that they are commanded to. Uh, they, their logic is that they should not. They should respect their parents, but they're not commanded. So the Talmud says, "Greater is somebody who honors his parents. Greater is somebody who's commanded to do a mitzvah and still does it than someone who doesn't and does it." We are commanded. Now, it's very strange. You might say the opposite. You know, if a Jew puts on tefillin, so, you know, he's doing a thing which Jews do. Fine. If a non-Jew puts on tefillin, that should be greater. Our rabbis say, no, that's not greater. Somebody who's commanded to do a mitzvah is great and still does it is greater than someone who's not commanded and does it. Does that make sense to you? Why? Because when I'm told to do something, that's when I say I don't want to. When someone tells me to put on a mask, oh, you told me to put on a mask. There's what I go to a synagogue. There's one guy every time he laughs at me at a mask. I put on two. He gets so annoyed. Why do you have two? I said, because I'm very religious. That's why. I like it. He's so bothered about the mask. Why is he so bothered? I asked him, why does it bother you? Please explain to me why it bothers Because it's stupid. Because it's unhealthy. Please. Okay. Why are you so bothered for five minutes? It's unhealthy for five minutes to wear a mask. You never put a scarf on before this whole pandemic when it was cold. You never put a scarf on your face because the wind was coming. You, you, hello? You ever been to New York? You can't move without covering your face in the cold. No, I don't want to wear a mask. You know why? Because someone's commanding me to do it. Because there's an environment which says I have to. Who cares? You don't believe in it. So what? You don't believe in it. But people are putting it on here. So just respect the environment. No. 
I don't want to put it on. That's, whether you agree with it or not, it's irrelevant. It's accepting the system or at least the environment where there is something which tells you that this is what we want you to do. It's actually a way to train yourself with humility. Can I accept somebody telling me, hey, 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 you're not wearing a mask? I say, oh, you're right, I forgot. I just put it back on. Without getting upset at all inside. It takes an art of humility. So to be able to accept a hierarchy once it's telling you to do something is much greater than to not accept it and do it because you just, you just, you know, you're meant to. Because you feel like you want it. Oh, you felt like you want it, so you're doing it for yourself. When you do it, when you're commanded to, oh, that's something much better. So it says, greater is somebody who's commanded than somebody who's not commanded. Now, we are commanded to honor our parents, all the more so us. Then there's another story. This is crazy. This same guy, Dima Benatina, had a mom who was crazy. And he was wearing a very expensive golden jacket, whatever. And he was sitting amongst the greatest of Rome. Rome was a dictatorship. You've got, you don't mess around when you're sitting there amongst kings and leaders and whatever it was. What happened then? As he was sitting with them in the highest of his pride in his beautiful luxury home, his mom started screaming at him. She smashed him on his face. Spat in his face. And he didn't say a word. His mom lost her mind. She started screaming at him, smashing, her, smashing his head, hitting him, spitting at him. He didn't say a word. That's another story of Dama Benatina. So that's how far honoring our parents needs to go. It's quite intense, huh? Listen to this. Listen to Maimonides. This is what Maimonides says about parenting. By the way, what's the, what's the most powerful way to parent. Maimonides says right, good parenting means that you, you, you have respect in the home but you don't demand it. Very interesting. A person has been A person must not weigh on his children his yoke of honor and to be particular about his honor. Because that way you'll cause them to be stumbling over you and eventually they'll hate you and they won't even honor you anymore. And somebody who hits his son hard and he's over a certain age and you educate him by hitting him after a certain age, he is excommunicated. A parent like that needs to be excommunicated, right? Back then, this is Talmud and Maimonides brings it down, but this is already from the times of the Talmud. That... According to Jew, we always said that somebody who hits his child, right, obviously in a case where he's already old enough at a certain age, you are doing something very easy, evil and you need to be excommunicated because you're going against the rule of you're transgressing by putting a stumbling block in front of a blind person. So let's see a bit of the language of Maimonides in... The laws of honoring a father and mother. First, he says that honoring your parents is a mitzvah, a very big mitzvah, and it's similar and very comparable to honoring God. It says, honor your father and mother, and it then says, fear your mother and father. It changes its way around. First, it says, honor your father and mother, then when it says, fear, Twice is, is it mentioned in the Torah, the requirement on your parents. Once it says honor, and there it brings the father first. Then it says fear, and there it brings the mother first. So our rabbis explain what is the reason, this is brought down in the Talmud of Kiddushin, what is the reason uh, that by honor, it's honor your father more, because it's more likely you'll honor your mother. You'll have respect for your mother more because she's around all the time. She's caring for you all the time. More likely you'll respect her first. So for that, that reason, the Torah says, honor your father first because you've got to give to that which is not natural for you to give. Then it says, fear your mother and father. Why? Because it's more, like, it's more likely you'll fear your father. You're afraid of your father. 
Therefore, the Torah says, have fear for your mother as well. Maimonides actually says that the reason why in one place, by honoring, it says father first, then mother, and by fearing, it says mother first, then father, is to teach me that they equally demand the same respect and equally demand the same fear. Same respect and fear to each one of them. Not one more than the other. So what is fear and what is honor? Maimonides says, this is in Maimonides, Mishnah Torah, Hilchot Mamrim, chapter 6. He says, what is fear and what's honor? Fear is that you don't stand in their place, nor do you sit in their place. That's fear. You don't argue with them, nor do you agree with them, which is a very interesting point. Arguing with them, obviously, makes sense you shouldn't do, but agreeing with them, even agreeing with them you shouldn't do, and the reason is because when you agree with them, you're basically saying, I'm on the same level as you, mom and dad. And I agree. I have a say. And who are we to have a say? They are beyond us. They brought us into this world. They are treated like God only in the area where they tell us not to do mitzvot. When they tell us to do bad things against the Torah, then we are not required to listen to them. But outside of that, we are required to respect them and honor them completely. And Maimonides says, you know what stage it's till? Just like the story of Dama Benatina. Even if somebody takes all your money from your pocket, your parent takes the coins from your pocket, throws it in your face, throws it into the ocean, ruins your money. Do not respond. Do not have pain. Do not be angry. Obviously, if you can stop it prior, then that's a different story. But we're talking about when it already happened. Accept the decrees of his parents because that's what Hashem said we should do is respect our father and mother. And to what extent? Even if you're wearing beautiful clothes, sitting in front of the heads of a community in a very important meeting and suddenly your father and mother walk in and they tear your clothing, they smack you on your head, spit in front of you. A person should remain calm, quiet and have fear from Hashem because he's the one that commanded us to Respect our parents. We also say, Whatever you say should be kept. Stick to your words. That's also a very important message in terms of parenting because what happens to a child is exactly how you are. I see it with my children. Whatever I do is what my child do, does. If I, if I in some ways deviate from that way, then my child also is starting to go in that way as well. You know, the minute that I change my uh, path is the minute that I see it in my channel. I'm doing something silly. He's doing something. It, it's copy. It's literally whatever you do is what they do. It, there's no way out of it. It's actually one of the biggest uh, lessons of having children is that it, tr it trains you to become a better person. Same with marriage. It trains you to recognize that you need to become a better person because now you're facing someone who's watching you and they're, they're copying you. It's like your mirror. So when they copy you, you're like, oh my gosh, I better behave. They're, they're really, I see my own faults in this child. I better be careful. For instance, how I react to different challenges is an indicator by my children when I see how they react to those challenges and I start seeing that they react the same way I do, then it's a, it's a sign that I have a problem within myself. Anyway, one of the things that we also learn from Joseph is his emunah, his faith, right? The idea that Yosef never gave up, stayed looking after himself, stayed strong, looked presentable. Even in his time that he was in prison, he remained faithful, always said that it's God. He kept using the word God when he was also when he was um, pulled out of the, when he was asked to interpret dreams. He said, I don't interpret dreams. God helps me interpret dreams. Everything he said was in the name of Hashem. He said, Hashem, Hashem, Baruch Hashem, right? Shem Hashem Shkura Bepiv, the name of God is constantly in his mouth. That's what it says. So Yosef was a person that had a lot of emunah. He was in the darkest of places and was able eventually to forgive his brothers. Can you imagine? Going through 17 years old, put into prison, hell. And eventually he looks back at his brothers. He says, I forgive you all. Don't worry. 
It all happened from Hashem. How does a person get to such a level? And the answer is emunah. It's for, for, there's no way else besides for emunah, which is faith. The, the strengthening of a person's faith is the key to overcoming some of those challenges. How does a person strengthen his faith? Simple. Not simple. But it takes a lot of work. And one of the works is to constantly see the positive light of every challenge you're going through. Yosef's ability was unique in the way that he was able to see some his own challenges. His you know saw himself being thrown into the pit. He saw the greatest of challenges. Yet he said, "Wait, I smell spices." As he's getting thrown, he goes down to Egypt. Wait, I see that I'm coming successful. Even in my, I got sold to the executioner. He didn't say, oh no, I got sold to the executioner. I got sold to a very important man. That's a position that I can work to. And eventually he works, he never gives up. One of the things that you learn from Joseph is he never gives up. He had all the excuses to give up everything. 17 years old and he never gave up. So when you look at this story, you see the story of Hanukkah as well. That's exactly what the Jews did on Hanukkah. What did they do? They were a small few in number against the many. Right? The Maccabim. Mi kamocha ba'elim Hashem. They stood strong with Hashem and they said, it doesn't matter. Yes, they are more than us, but with our emunah, with our faith, we are going to do everything we can to succeed and push ourselves. By the way, this is also the hidden story of the dreidel, right? The dreidel has nun gimel heishin. Nes gadol haya sham. We say shin, but really it's po. Here, when they lived in Israel, it was po. In here, in Israel, sham means there. Nes gadol, a great miracle happened here. What's the dreidel? So obviously, they didn't allow us to study Torah. So the kids would play with dreidel. The kids will play with dreidel, and eventually, oh, when when the Romans would come in and they'd see that they, hey, what's going on here? They're studying Torah. They'd open the door. They'd see a bunch of kids playing dreidel. They'd have a security guard at the entrance, and as soon as they'd notice someone's coming, all the kids would start putting out their dreidels, and they'd play dreidel, and that was their way of hiding from the study of Torah, being caught studying Torah. It wasn't just about the dreidel, there's a much deeper meaning, of course, to the dreidel. The dreidel represents this world. And who's turning the dreidel? Who's spinning the dreidel from above is Hashem. The world is constantly being spun by Hashem. And what's very interesting is that the power of the spin is based on the power of the person from above. Whoever's spinning it from above, the way you spin it is the way it's going to spin from the bottom. Meaning, whatever happens in our world is because somebody span it in that way, exactly the way they want it. I can't change reality. That's why if I'm playing the game of dreidel and I say to myself, I'm going to spin it extra hard and I'm going to try and get a shin. I'm going to try and get a gimel. Give it a shot. Spins extra hard and tries to get a gimel. It, it's not in your hands. It's totally not in your hands. No matter how hard you spin it, soft or hard, if it's meant to land on gimel, it will. And that's also with us in life as well. It shows us the lesson of emunah, of faith, and also the idea of effort. In life, we also have effort and we have faith. Effort means how much effort you put into things. You know, you, you work. So you, you have to work in order to succeed. How many hours does a person need to work? To a point where you're not sleeping, you're not eating right, you're not looking after your health, you're not thinking of family, you're not thinking of life. And to what point does work actually, a person say to himself, okay, fine, I worked, now let me sleep. I worked, let me spend some time to study some Torah. I worked, let me spend some time to do other things. That's also to do with emunah. Because no matter how hard you spin the dreidel, if it's meant to land on the right dreidel, it will. But just put in the effort. That's all. You've got to just spin it. Actually, sometimes it's not about spinning hard. Sometimes it's just a light little spin gets you a clean spin. 
and it lit spins well. There's a certain point where we put too much effort in our success, way beyond necessary. And at that point, we need to say to ourselves, boom, I'm stopping. I'm going to put in my effort, whatever hours a day I need. It's like working on Shabbat. The Chavetz Chaim said, somebody who works on Shabbat, it's like somebody who opens his barrel. He has a barrel with a tap. And he wants to get wine from his barrel. He says to himself, oh, I want to get more wine from this barrel. You know what I'll do? I'll add another tap, another faucet into the barrel. He makes another hole, takes another faucet. He says, look, psh, now I get much more wine. What does somebody say? You fool. It's not going to change how much wine you have in the barrel. Because you open another hole, it means you're going to have more wine coming out. But it doesn't mean that you're actually going to have more fixed amount of wine. The amount of wine you're meant to have is the amount of wine you're going to have. It's the same with somebody who works more than he needs to. Spins the dreidel more than necessary. Thinking that if I spin it harder, I'll hit a gimel. If I spin it harder, it's like the people that that go to the casino and they they play, you know, the, the spin, the, the thing where you spin and it goes on the if it goes on red or you put all your money around and he's screaming, "Come on, come on!" Like, what, what's your scream gonna? You, you're gonna scream loud that it's gonna help it spin more. I mean, what's it? What's the point of screaming? It's completely not in your control, right? The spin is beyond you. That's exactly how it is with us as well. When we work way beyond necessary, the spin just is is unnecessary. What's the point? You just you're opening another hole in the barrel so you get more wine coming out of the barrel, but the same amount of wine is in the barrel anyway. By the way, that's the other problem of stealing. What's the problem of stealing? What's the big problem of stealing? The problem of stealing is you don't believe what you're meant to get. So you say, oh, I'm going to steal it from him. Meaning what God is meant to give me, I don't believe is, is right. My fixed amount that I'm meant to have is not fixed. What I deserve, I'm not getting. And therefore I need to steal to get what I don't deserve. It's a very bad thing. It, it's, it's one of the great signs of a lack of faith. Stealing is not just a problem that you hurt somebody. You hurt your own faith in understanding that in life, what you're meant to have, you'll have. What you're not meant to have, you won't have. It's like people when there was the whole looting thing that was going on and everyone was stealing shoes. I said, that's a very bad thing, not for the stores that lost the shoes. Of course, it's bad for them. But it's also bad for the people that are doing it because now they're accustoming themselves to thinking that I, I, I'm not ha what I have in my life isn't good enough. What I have is not deserved. I need to fight my way in to making more. It's a very dangerous mindset to have. The right mindset is to have is I'll put my effort into making money. God will give me based on the effort. Well, he, he knows exactly what he's meant, what I'm meant to have. Some people are very wise. It says, money does not belong to wise. The most stupid people sometimes, five-year-old unboxing a, a, some kind of video is one of the wealthiest people on YouTube. These like 10-year-olds unboxing videos are, are some of the wealthiest people making the biggest money of influencers on YouTube. Isn't that interesting? Hashem has his exact decisions of where money is meant to be allocated to. Put a person that puts in more effort than necessary isn't doing the right thing. Anyway, that's Chanukah. The lights of Chanukah also represent Torah, which is what we were having, and they wanted to stop us from having it. The soul, the spiritual of this world, the study of Torah. Study of Torah can make us overcome all the challenges just like Joseph. Joseph, throughout his journey, was constantly immersed in the Torah study that his father taught him. Study of Torah is one of the main ways to take away all of our, our challenges in life. You could be in Corona, in the worst of places. If you have Torah, in a prison. If you have Torah, you're good to go. What's it like? That's why Torah is like a light. It's compared, mitzvah Torah. Oh, Torah is compared to a light. Why is Torah compared to a light? Besides for the fact that it gives us a lot. One of the beautiful examples is, 
let's say a child's seeing something very scary, a scary movie, and it's a horror, and he's with his dad, and this movie's really scary. What does a smart parent do? Get rid of the TV. That's what he should do. But let's say uh, he doesn't get rid of the TV. What does a smart parent do? He says to his child, what are you worried about? He goes to the lights, turns it on, turns on all the lights in the house and says, look, see, it's just a video. It's just a movie. When you turn on the lights, all the horror moves away, right? When you turn on the lights, the whole cinema effect is not the same. You can never enjoy a movie with lights on because you're not immersed into that world. You turn the lights on, ah, you face reality. The Torah allows us to face reality in this world. You turn on the light of Torah and you remove from yourself the world of darkness and fear and COVID and worries and anxiety and what am I going to do and hate. You're able to forgive. That's exactly what Joseph, Joseph forgave his brothers, lived in hell and was happy. It just, it's, it, his mental health to me speaks more than anything else speaks volumes the ability that he had is in mental health speaks much more volumes to me than the fact that he survived what he went through the fact that he mentally survived that to me is the greatest thing anyway thank you all for listening and being here 